0: You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of
1: Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by faithful Richard, and not Sean, because baby reasons, still. In his place, we have Jasper Gardner-Birch, who is back to talk about Really, I guess to dive deeper into this article that he wrote, which was fantastic, just as a a short review, put a game on Kickstarter called Nut Hunt and wrote an amazing series of articles called uh, Kickstarter in Review. And he, you know, his most recent one is about his mistakes that he made. And it got me curious enough that I had to invite him on. And uh, we talked about, you know, very well, we talked about various things, but among them were his mistakes with Facebook ads. We talked about what Actually went well in his campaign and and for his uh, for his game and then we got into the salty stuff. You know, there's just too much material to cover in a single episode. So welcome back to the show, Jasper.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's really exciting. I really enjoyed last episode's conversation, and I'm excited to just dive a little bit deeper today.
1: So let's let's move on to negative things. I want to talk about what was awful, and you know, you you did a, a you know a whole write up about about this stuff but let's just kind of you know take it from the top and then we'll probably skewer you about about some of those things and then maybe we'll just kind of gloss over them just depending on how you know what what your thoughts are
2: um, i actually did uh, put a little bit more excel together earlier today in preparation for the podcast so i can share some more details on uh, our Facebook ad campaign and mostly what didn't work, but also a little bit of what worked. So for everyone listening, I wrote an article that I published earlier this week that was on the largest mistakes of our Kickstarter. And two of them are semi-quantifiable. The first was our Facebook ad campaign and total campaign costs for our Facebook ad campaign were $9,288.90. Now. To break that down, we did three different types of campaign. the The largest was a direct lead generation campaign using Facebook forms. On that campaign, we spent four thousand eight hundred twenty five dollars and seventy two cents to generate one thousand seven hundred and eighty eight leads. That is a cost of two seventy per lead.
1: Now, and by the way, I'll preface and mention that we we're not the company that you worked with. I'm not sure if you, if you soloed this or worked with someone else, but we, w- we did not work on your account. Did you do a lot of this yourself? So I did,
2: a, I did a good amount of it myself. I had uh, one person come in um, to consult. Uh, so they did about like nine or 10 hours of helping out on it, formatting the ads and things like that. Um, so that was another couple hundred dollars that I included in that total before. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want, I think that for, for, the capacity that they operated within the campaign right so it was sort of like helping they weren't helping with the back-end pipeline which is i think a lot of where we dropped the ball um so i don't want to like denigrate them at all i think that in terms of like helping optimize for the types of ads that we're running and troubleshooting some of the behind the scenes things i think they did i think that they did a a pretty acceptable job um a pretty good job um, in terms of their expertise they also had a couple of we also had a couple of creative ideas because we were trying sort of to be creative with this and, and take make things a little bit smarter and better. That I'll get into it in, in a minute that didn't work in our case, but I think that they were reasonable experiments anyway. OK, so I don't want to like so I had a great experience working with this individual. I don't want to, you know, shout them out on the podcast because I know that people will take it the wrong way since we're talking about was, was negative. Um, but I would, you know, I would work with them again. I think I would just be smarter about having a better overall view of the, the ecosystem of the campaign and also have better ways to measure the success instead of pour money into something and then cross your fingers that you're going to get conversions. Right.
1: Like, yeah, it is. I will say that before a Kickstarter campaign, you have, uh, what, what can you measure? You can measure the leads that you generate from ads. And the problem with that is that you cannot measure how much money you're making from said leads. You can only do that after. And I find that to be pretty difficult, a difficult pill to swallow. You know, it's, it's in essence, you're guessing at what percentage of those people that, that you jump onto your email list are going to actually back your campaign and your results will vary based on what you do, the type of people you target, you know, a million things, even the offer that you, that you put out there. And it's, it's kind of difficult to tell, but, but before you go live, the best you can tell is in essence kind of boils down to your cost per lead, which you said was about $2 and 70 cents. And that seems acceptable to me.
2: So that was that was the direct ad spend cost per lead, right? So then there were other things like, you know, I had a, a Zapier subscription to sort of port the leads into the email list. And there were a couple other things that sort of added a little bit to that expense, but yeah, the the ad spend per lead was 270 for for that campaign. Now we had another campaign where the in su- in certain channels, the ad spend per lead was under $1. Okay. But this is the worst conversions you could imagine. So, um, so, so uh, the other channel, and this is one of the, the areas that, that I think was an interesting experiment. Um, so <laughs> the individual, the person who I worked with who, who, who consulted on it um, is a marketing expert, digital marketing expert. Um, and he's very successful in, in certain other niches and now is, has learned the board game space and is trying to sort of go broader in the board game space. One of the things that he's, he had done in the past is for restaurants, something that's very, very successful for restaurants is to do uh, sort of a giveaway where you have sort of, you give your email address and then, you know, one person will win free ice cream for a year and you know what you do with everyone else. You send them a coupon for a free ice cream cone. Right. And it's like super successful because you get sort of both ends of the marketing. You get people signing up for, for this giveaway, but then you also have sort of the back end that people are incentivized to stick around. So we also did did a did a mark did a did a giveaway campaign and we gave away uh Um, we gave away a gift card to your local game store. And the thinking was, is that we didn't want people who just want a free giveaway. You have to sort of have a local game store and be excited about games and be excited about hobby games to sort of be involved with it. But we didn't have that sort of follow through that the restaurants have where you give them a coupon for a free scoop of ice cream. Overall, we only spent, we spent $330 on the giveaway ads and then $250 on actual giveaways. And obviously that those giveaway dollars are a fixed cost. So you could ramp up the ad spend a lot. Um, so the the leads per ad spend was a dollar oh five, but then when you factor in the other money that we spent on the actual giveaway assets, it was like a buck eighty. But if you just you could go much larger with that and still have the same giveaway dollar amount. So you know, let's say you could get it to a dollar fifty, a dollar forty, if you wanted to. Someone would give us their email address, and. Zapier would send it over to MailChimp, which I'm still using, but I'm going to get off of it. Um, But would send it over to MailChimp. And then MailChimp would send my welcome email. My welcome email introduced us, had a little graphic, all of this stuff. So I didn't have a lot beyond that other than just our normal newsletter, which if someone is just signing up either for, and I did in in the newsletter, you know, a link to that next month's giveaway. So that was a little bit of incentive to stick around. But I didn't have like a really strong way To get people to come and be a larger part of the community um, and to be more engaged with us and to hop on our Facebook and to actually care, to be honest, which I think was, you know, a huge opportunity missed that I think I haven't figured out for our next game, but that's for some idiosyncratic reasons with that game Um, that's going to make it really easy because we're doing a big digital play push for that game but it's something that i'll need to figure out on our future games is how to have this pipeline that you guys talk about on the podcast of getting people fully integrated and engaged with who you are and invested with you and your your product instead of just having the single touch point of this email that they gave you.
1: Yeah. I I tend to find that the email list, a lot of people will ask, you know, why, I mean, the email is invented in the nineties and it is currently like the, one of the oldest forms of communication and social media of various kinds. TikTok probably being the newest mega craze is, you know, that just like more modern. And so why should I focus on an email versus, you know, likes on my Facebook page or my Instagram or, you know, whatever it is, right? Or Discord. Discord's an excellent community that can really reward you. So, you know, why not focus on those things? And for me, I always use that email as like the jumping off point. So it has to be, it's like the center of communication, but as quickly as you can and as rapidly as you can, I guess, you have to kind of handshake people that join your email list with your other communities, other mediums of communication, because eventually you're going to lose. I mean, a great email list will have a 50% open rate, which means that half the people will not open. And so, you know, at the very best, you'll get that 50% and more likely you'll get between, you know, maybe 25 and 40. And so you um, really need to get people. But uh, by the way, the welcome email, is going to have an open rate of well above 50%. If you have an email that just gets sent out right away. And that's like your one shot to get people into your Facebook group or your discord community or whatever, wherever it is that you are going to kind of build. And I, I tend to find that that email is really important, but you have to use the email to bring them into, I don't know, the marketing machine, if you will. So for me, like every email that I send has to have a social media link. Like a group that I focus on, trying to get people to that group or something similar.
0: Email's a staple, I think that'll be around for quite a long time still. Maybe, maybe I'm old. Maybe I'm a boomer, but uh, <laughs> I act like a boomer because um, I'm not very. I, I'm not on TikTok. I don't Instagram. I don't, there's, I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of social media myself, but I do have some things. In fact, Andrew will probably laugh. I actually jumped on Discord today just to see if there was anything happening. I poked my head into your form and posted quickly. I saw
1: that. That was, you caused a ruckus.
0: What's great about email is that it's not like a text message. A text message, you know, you send it, it immediately goes to them and alerts them. It's in their face, which sometimes can be good, but you know, it may be the wrong one with stuff. But email, people pay bills, you know, not every, everything they pay a bill for has an app. Um, so they'll get a, like I get tons of reminders. Your, your next bill is due in seven days via email. So I at least check my email at least once a day. And so, yeah, email is always a great first step. And like you said, I, you, you want to focus on the the social media uh, platforms that you know, but you also want to invest in a couple different ones. You don't want to just do one by itself because a lot of us um, aren't using the same platforms. Like I said, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I I'm must be old school because I'm like YouTube. I do Reddit and I hate Facebook. And I don't use anything else. So for me, if, <laughs> to catch my attention, you'll have to have something on YouTube or something, you know, on Reddit and whatnot. Um, but yeah, but but email, I think, is, a, 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 is still going to be around for quite a long
1: time. Yeah, and it, it does tend to jump trends, you know, like Facebook was huge, and it still is. But then, of course, Instagram became super popular with 20 to 30 year olds, and now TikTok with little children and also nerds like us. And girls that twerk and guys that twerk. You know, you know, TikTok actually surpassed Google for being the largest website on the internet like last year. It gets more views than Google. So yeah, so there are a lot of twerking scary. people um, out <laughs> there. And, um, you know, I, I actually have a real estate friend that became kind of famous in the area for just taking short TikTok videos of deer. He gets like 400,000 views per video of just TikTok or of deer eating. And being boring, and he sells lots of houses that way too. So it's kind of ridiculous. So the, the I, I guess the kind of the conclusion of this Facebook ads segment is you feel like where you could improve next time is the uh, funnel that you that you brought leads into, and instead of uh, getting leads and kind of capturing them and holding on to them for you know just when your Kickstarter launches and maybe sending out your monthly newsletter to those people. You would try to, you know, maybe uh, as as I always call it that virtuous cycle of sending them to a landing page, capturing their email, trying to get them into a community quickly, talking to them like that. Is that is that what you, you know, so hear?
2: I think that that's that's the big takeaway. But there's also a lot of sort of other I think important lessons learned that I would love to sort of rattle off. Um, so first, I, w- I want to give the punchline of sort of this Facebook leads campaign. Um, all those emails raised, collected. We got. Two thousand one hundred two emails, thirty two of them became backers. Right, so that just sort of shows the uh, the huge, ouch. the huge, the 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 ouch, right? Wow. Um, so th- there's there's a there's a number of things. One, this virtuous cycle. I think it, I need need to do a much better job um about implementing that. Another issue is actually I think domain health, which is not something that I was very that was front of mind um going to the campaign, but our email list grew substantially over the course of. A couple months leading into the campaign, our open rates went from fifty percent in in December uh, down to about thirty percent right before the campaign launched. It's actually interesting, uh, Andrew, that you say that your welcome email should be about a fifty percent open rate. Our welcome email was a twenty six percent open rate from Ooh. Facebook leads.
0: Do you think the um, my concern because uh, I've seen it, like you said, sometimes it really works and sometimes it just can be really bad do you think the giveaway may have been an issue in that because i know like some people like oh free ice cream and you know i I, i'm a big boy so i i move my fat butt to free ice cream all the time but doesn't mean i'd be interested in any of their other (laughs) products or services
2: i think the giveaway was part of it but the giveaway was only was 314 out of 2100. Oh, okay. So the smaller, so it okay. wasn't, it wasn't huge. It wasn't our main focus. Cause we, I knew it, we had, I had, we had an idea that it might not be great, but we wanted to test it. Mm-hmm. I think that there was also with Nut Hunt specifically a couple of idiosyncratic issues with, facebook in general and sort of the messaging and how we could do that so nut hunt is a little bit of a cheeky name right it's the type of thing where it's you know i think of it like a g like a 90s disney movie where it's completely g-rated but the grown-ups are having a beer around the table are going to have a couple chuckles right Mm -hmm. like so in general in person that's completely fine right and like most people are adults and, and we're fine with it professional yeah but people suck at nuance on the internet right and like they can't just sort of like have a chuckle so sort of people interacting with the post because of the name of the game rather than interacting with it because it's something that really engaged them and excited them. Yeah. you know
1: i'll mention real quick kind of piggybacking on top of that um i have in deliverance you've got uh in essence it's a christian board game and i have a i I'll say like half of the fans are christians and then half are non-christians like it's got a lot of crossover which is cool but every time i make a joke I lose at least one or two Christian subscribers that are like, like I could never support somebody that jokes about, you know, Disney like that. And then they unsubscribe. And my audience is kind of square, you know, when it comes to joking, (laughs) they don't really receive jokes very well. The, we'll say like the non-Christian segment, like we just laugh together. And um, but every April fools, I, I lose like a few people. Because we, I put like a bunch of googly eyes on all of the angels, and I'm like, we're doing realistic angels <laughs> now. I'm like, put a bunch of googly eyes on the angels because you know everyone always talks about that, and I lost
2: backers because they're like, "How dare you do this?" You know. I mean, it's isn't like, the biblical oh, description of angels though like some of them are like terrifying, right? They're like tons of. They all have
1: googly eyes of some kind, and right, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I just, I just find that funny, you know when you when you joke, it 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 kind of. Um, is something that a corporation can't really joke because you're the man and I need to stick it to the man and you're not a real person but when you get out of that corporate veil and you're like hey you know I'm Jasper or for me I'm Andrew talking and whatever it tends to be a joke tends to be received a lot better but you know it's just i guess lessons learned
2: <laughs> yeah i mean it's also interesting because i've also found that open rates and sort of the the resonance of the email people care a lot more about me than they do the company um and so when i write in a very personal tone it tends to resonate a lot more and i'm more likely to get people to respond more likely to get people to click on links um even like it's weird but i think just like when people see that first blurb in the email it seems like i have higher open rates when it's like that Mm um so sort of another lesson learned is sort of the messaging is really important and you know for better or worse i have made myself the face of this company right and i will be you know like jamie Stegmeier is for Stonemeyer games like i will be the face of of this company sort of going forward and so people want to relate to me they don't necessarily it's not about Pine Island necessarily. So other lessons learned. I mean, those were the big ones. The domain health is interesting. Also, uh, what I actually ended up doing to sort of circumvent sort of maybe any domain health issues, because I think I did get a little bit of of that. I had one person who I emailed with before be like, "Oh, this went to spam." It's like, all right, that's a problem. So I actually um, used Lemlist, which I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with it, but Lemlist is an email service that warms up your email address, so it sends emails to other accounts to sort of get it in good standing in sort of google and then instead of doing a normal list serve email or a blast email you schedule your email so it sends out one at a time and you paste it so you can do one at a time every two minutes for the next two weeks mm-hmm. um, and you do it just during waking hours and you can personalize the emails so it feels a lot more personal when people open them so what i actually ended up doing is i we like our open rates weren't great during the campaign. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I was like, I'm not going to worry too much about the health of the Pine Island email account. So I put our email, I put our listserv into the list. And I sent everyone an email from our personal email address. And I was at first doing that by hand. And I was like, there has to be automation for this. And that's how I sort of found LemList. And it's a really good service um, for what it is. I'm not a permanent subscriber, but I paid the 60 bucks for a month to sort of like get the features unlocked. Um, And I think that that was useful. And we also outside of the Facebook ads, email email list, I've also had very good resonance with um, retail stores. Um, And I've had two touch points with them. And one of them was emails, which I sent through, through Lemlist. Um, we've had uh, like about, I think like 50, 50 retail stores get back to us. Not all of them are interested, but we've had a pretty good success reaching out to retail stores for like a direct to retail program. Yeah.
0: I think I read you have uh, at least, about fourteen retail backers, is that right?
2: So we have fourteen retail backers on the actual campaign. But then outside of the campaign, we have even uh, more. Now,
0: you quickly you you briefly mentioned that you use Lumless to find some of these retail backers. Was this something where you just grabbed a list of stores and then sort of plugged them in or how did you, how did you market?
2: So what I actually did is I scraped Gamma's store locator um, to get the mailing addresses and email addresses of 850 um, US and Canada based friendly local game stores. Then we did a physical mailer to all of them. So our cost for that was a little over a dollar per um, and we sent an actual physical mailer to every single game store that we could get the address for that I think I should have timed it a little bit later we did it pre-campaign and it was like check out our campaign when it goes live and it had a link to the landing page Um, Uh, in retrospect uh, I would either do two mailers or I would do uh, and have one go out during the campaign or I would just send them all during the campaign I think that would have been a much better idea Um, but even with that you know it made it, it introduced us within every mailer we had a printed out letter from me that I signed personally so you know it was like a little personal touch um, we had like a little stamp that we put on the envelope with squirrels right a nice little like touch to be like hey like we care and we're here and this is what we're doing introduced us introduced the retail pledge level told them a little bit about the game during the campaign um, i started sending these emails to all of these retail backers and a good number of them sort of who got back to us said that they they were like oh we we got your flyer and started a conversation with us there are a lot of retail stores that will only buy through distributors there are uh, plenty that won't do. Um, kickstarters there are plenty that only want one or two copies of a game and for us where our economics are it's too costly to break cases Um, so it's either sort of one case or no cases so you know so it, it's mixed but right we had 14 retail backers in the campaign which i think is pretty decent we have so- over 10 so you know let's say we're like 26 27 firm yeses for wanting to buy at least a case of our game and then we have about 50 maybes um, that are sort of floating in the ether. So I don't know what's typical for a new campaign a new for an indie board game publisher. I think that's a pretty good result. One of the things that I'm thinking about is like, can we also send more games out to like high traffic board game cafes? That's a huge mm-hmm. capital investment, but it might be worth it, right? Like it might be worth it to send out like 50 or even a hundred games and just eat that cost to mm-hmm. get it into like every board game cafe in every major city.
1: To me, I, I think that uh, it is a good idea, but uh, there are a couple of challenges with doing something like that uh, to think about logistically. Um, so one example that uh, of a way that this worked really well is I did T-shirts for the Deliverance campaign, but I did I I ended up taking pre-orders for T-shirts with my audience before we went to Kickstarter. We uh, had about 200 shirts printed, and we sold like 100. 120 of them or so and more more since that time and then i closed the orders and then i gave the rest of them away for like a large part i gave them to influencers i sent them to you know i gave them to the people who had play tested and other things like that and that became such a big deal that every time i walk around a convention i get stopped i mean if i walk from one side of the floor to the other i get stopped at least 10 times if i'm wearing a deliverance t-shirt are you affiliated with that one Kickstarter. And it's like, yeah, I made it. And I have a really great conversation because of that. And I think that that did a lot of great things for Kickstarter. We also, you know, people demanded that I did shirts. So we ended up selling another 500 on the Kickstarter campaign. And um, we did like three designs and I felt like a t-shirt company that also sold a board game.
2: Interesting because a lot of times I think common advice that you hear is To not muddy your Kickstarter with non-gaming product, but it sounds like that was very successful for you.
1: Yeah, and I totally agree with that advice. But my my audience they they really wanted them. I'm like, all right, if you really really want them, like we're gonna we'll do it. But you you better buy them all. Yeah, (laughs) it's like I'm. I just you know they basically I told my audience no miniatures. We're not doing miniatures, and they beat my door down until I included angel minis, and they freaked out in a good way when we did the angel minis and then the same thing for the t-shirts. And so, but you know, with t-shirts you can do like an unlimited number. It's just however many I get ordered, then I can print that many. But with uh, board games, you have a finite number. So I had a client one time uh, that does ghost pepper, hot sauce, and they, they have a finite amount of ghost peppers that they are able to purchase. And they use all of them to make the sauce and they're going to sell all of it. But the question is: Are they going to sell direct? Are they going to sell through their, you know, Amazon distributors, or are they going to sell through wholesalers, whatever? And they wanted to sell as much direct as they possibly could because they would make the highest margin. So the, um, you know, for for a campaign, kind of to bring it full circle back to a campaign like Nut Hunt, if you make, let's say, you know, three thousand copies, and you give. You know, uh, you you deliver to your backers, and then you have I don't know 1500 left. Then you'll probably sell through those if the game is good, and if you're you know if you do a little bit of post campaign support, you can do a little bit of ads or whatever, and that's very low effort and low dollar requirement um, to sell through those 1500 units. But if you give away 50 or 100 to very local game, uh, board game cafes, you'll generate a lot of demand, but then you you can't sell those hundred copies and Mm -hmm. you can't fulfill all of the demand that you might create so it's kind of a catch-22 if you made 15,000 units then you should do that but if you know so I guess it depends all on your it's
2: really hard this this stuff's so hard because it's so hard to know like Kickstarter is a great way to help gauge demand to some extent, right? Like we're not going to print 10,000 units right now, right? Like we're probably going to print 3,000, like you said, that's sort of like what I'm thinking. But it's so hard because for Nut Hunt and for our next game, I have had people come up to me and tell me, Nut Hunt is my favorite game full stop, right? No ifs, ands, or buts, right? And so, you know, that's not everyone, but it's the type of thing where like there is some chance, there's some one outcome among many is that, this will connect with those people strongly enough that it'll become sort of something like larger than life, right? Like, I'm not saying that that's like the base case. Like the base case was we probably sell through 30,000 games and then, you know, do another another print run and sell, you know, another 1,500 or something, right? Like that's sort of like the base case. But somewhere in this like range of outcomes is this tipping point where if we can get it in front of enough people, it could snowball into something larger. And our strategy for the company is like, you know, I want to do this full time and I don't want to be a serialized Kickstarter creator full time, right? I want to have, you know, use Kickstarter to bring things to market, but then have sort of continued sales. And I think the way that games long typically long sell long term very well is by having a retail presence. You have some exceptions, right? Like too many bones for a long time didn't have any retail presence um, because the pricing didn't make sense with all the dice that they had but almost every game that sort of becomes a household name or becomes an evergreen title, a big portion of that is because it's on retail shelves and people can see it and it's that sort of advertising, the continued exposure, it's being taught, it's being demoed, things like that. Like 70 or 80% of board games pre-pandemic were sold through distribution. Now, some of that was discounted online retailers, but a lot of that was going into actual board game stores where these games can be shown off. And so it's hard because I think it's tough to, to gauge how many to print to to meet the demand and not sort of have warehousing fees and not, you know, have to sit on things. But you also want to account for like, what if there's, you get a really good view, review from Shut Up and Sit Down and then everyone wants your game suddenly, right? So like, there's a lot of uncertainty over these outcomes. Obviously margins are the best if people buy direct from us and that's great. But like, I would rather not have as high margins now and sort of preserve the chance of this sort of being a smash hit on retail shelves and get it out into the world as broadly as possible. Because I'm still in this phase where I just want to like get it out there as broadly as possible because I believe that there's enough people who it'll really resonate with that I just want it to hit that tipping point. And I don't know if that's sort of like crazy or not or smart, but that's sort of how I'm thinking through it.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things, a lot of, a lot of people will, will make a smaller product and have it enter the world and then kind of really in order to you know yes they want it to be profitable but they really want it to pave the way for future titles and that are going to be like a big it was a smash hit and now it's in distribution and so is the other game because that one was good and now i have enough titles to to have a distributor care and then we'll re-release you know like nut hunt you would re-release and then it would be in barnes and Noble right? And uh, a lot of, you know, and and Target and a lot of uh, those, a lot of companies have stories like that. So it totally makes sense. I guess it depends on where you're at, you know, and for me, Deliverance, I think it's a, I had to prove that people wanted a game like that. And now that I know that a lot of people want a game like that, we'll sell through a bunch of units, we'll come up, you know, we'll do an expansion Kickstarter and other things like that. And, really part of the the question mark in the future is like, how big will it go? Like, where will it, where will it go? And um, so eventually it needs to produce, right? Eventually it needs to go somewhere. So,
0: but how how much did you uh, sell the game for? Yeah. So we charged
2: $35 um, and then estimated U.S. shipping is $11. I'm going to expect it to be pretty close to that. So $46 all in, which I think is 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 pretty reasonable and fair. Uh, we have a lot of components. We have 101 meeples. We have 150 cards. We have uh, 19 hexes, which is like four pieces of chipboard. Um, so we have like a pretty heavy um, component-wise game for that price. Um, I think if you were, you know, it's probably going to start off at like $50 in retail, which isn't like that crazy difference, but I would expect it to to creep up to sort of $55 pretty quickly to be comparable with some of the other games. With the elasticity of, of demand, I sort of assumed that, you know, a lot of the forums that I frequent are, you know, Reddit and Facebook and people who are vocal on those forums tend to be pretty price sensitive. and They tend to be pretty focused on like, oh, is this worth it for the money? But these are very, very invested consumers who are, are price sensitive. And when we did play test surveys, you know, and these were prototype versions of the game, you know, glue sticks again, right. Holding it together. Um, You know, we asked people, how much would you expect to pay for a game uh, like this? Right. And I think that like naturally people are going to sort of think of what they would pay on a discounted retailer website and also, people aren't necessarily the best at extrapolating sort of what a finished product will look like with custom meeples versus cubes, um, right? So one play tester, you know, we were having a conversation about it and they're like, oh, like, I, I think I'd pay like, you know, like $35. And they're like, but if there were like squirrel meeples, I'd pay like 50 bucks easily. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, like, that's something that I need to communicate better because we do have custom squirrel meeples. Like each player has a unique squirrel meeple in the game. But when people are playtesting it with like eight millimeter cubes, their feedback isn't necessarily as as impactful. So during the campaign, I did a couple things. One, once I set the price of $35, it was $35. But I did a little bit of tweaking with how with the messaging around the game. I changed the cover image on Kickstarter um, for a little while. I ran some ads that were said they're only $35 to see if it affected anything. And it, no one cared. People were not price sensitive at all. If anything, I think people were willing to pay substantially more in the Kickstarter. I don't want to charge too much and be unfair to our supporters and our consumers. But I do think that a much more reasonable price would be, you know, sort of like a $39 um, price tag on the base game. Plus, you know, right now I'm subsidizing shipping, um, depending on on your geography, what state you're in in the US. Um, so a little bit less subsidization and, and a little bit higher price tag. And just having that wider margin not only would have been nice for, you know, because we would have recouped some of our investment, more of our investment. But also, it would have given us a lot more flexibility over adjusting stretch goals mid-campaign. So pre-campaign, I priced out with our manufacturer how much each and every one of the stretch goals that we were offering would cost. And I didn't have a lot of flexibility beyond that to add more things into the campaign. So when people would come to us and be like, oh, what about this? Could you do this for a stretch goal? It's like, well, no, because we can't really make the game more expensive because we aren't taking a very wide margin as it is. Um, so I really think that that like, you know, let's call it like three dollars on the base game plus, you know, two or three dollars on shipping, I think that added flexibility would have been just nice to have. The perceived value in the mm-hmm. price
1: oftentimes I find is in the eye of the beholder, right? That's the a term that is used a lot. And obviously if people are looking at a price for a board game and they're not interested in board games, they will not be willing to pay very much for it. When we're talking about, you know, the, the price and the value you need to only consider people that are interested in your product, right? So uh, people that play board games, especially, you know, Kickstarter backers and whatnot, like you said, they are going to look at other games, maybe even look at other Kickstarters they backed or other Kickstarters that they know about And look at the price and the components for those and say, is this reasonable, like in line with what, you know, I could pay for something else. And, uh, you know, people will look at the number of cardboard things and, or whatever, plastic cubes and meeples and whatnot. And they'll be like, oh, the other game had like eight more meeples for the same price. You know, sometimes they'll, they'll be. I guess they'll be persnickety. It's probably the best word in the English language on things like that. But I, I find that the, as you mentioned, the price elasticity of demand at $35 versus 39, there's, there's very little difference. I see, I see people make the mistake all the time of shorting themselves some, uh, uh, some money off of the the retail cost to try to look a little bit better to the end consumer. And in general, I find the major price breaks, you have a $19 price break that anything $20 and over people need to kind of think about before they before they buy. Something that's 10 bucks, 15 bucks, if people want it, they don't even none of these, you know, other none of the heavy math enters their you know, enters the equation. It's just simply, do I want this? Yes. I don't I mean, it doesn't matter how much is in my bank account. It doesn't matter you know, what value of the components and this and that, it's like, I'll just, yeah, I'll buy it. If it's 20 bucks and I want it or less, I'll just buy it. But then you've got kind of the, the, what I look at is the, the next tier of games, which really uh, price up to about $49 um, that people will start to look at the components and, and other things like that. And You know, as somebody that is close to the game itself, you look and say, okay, this is the manufacturing cost and I should probably price a $49 retail, maybe it's $10 or whatever landed cost and you need to price it at about 50 bucks to, you know, to make money on it at at retail. You're like, well, you know, could I squeeze it a little bit more? And I think that maybe one of the major takeaways of this particular lesson is it shouldn't be about what you think the tightest, best price is, but it should be more about the value to the end consumer and what they're willing to pay for it, right?
2: Yeah, and I think that that's fair. I think that I I underestimated what people people in general wanted excuses to pay more and one of the things that i didn't do with this campaign because it's our first campaign is i didn't have a lot of add-on products or different skus in general i think that people were looking for reasons to pay more not reasons to not back it and we might have lost a a couple backers right here and there um who, who would have bought it if it was a couple bucks cheaper but not very many at all. I also want to make another point on sort of the power of pricing a little bit higher that I think is a little bit underappreciated that I didn't appreciate um, quite as much. Marketing on one of the big reasons to be on Kickstarter is because of the discoverability on the Kickstarter platform um, versus other crowdfunding platforms. There's sort of this inherent audience that is seeing similar projects that they've already backed, back things that their friends have backed, and also looking at the front couple pages of Kickstarter. So the way that the Kickstarter algorithm places you is based on a number of factors, but the biggest one is funding. Um, How quickly you fund, how much money you bring in, um, and then how many backers you're bringing in, the velocity of backers, and the velocity of comments on your page, right? All of these things sort of go together into some algorithm that we don't know the secret sauce for, but you can see Mm -hmm. sort of the output. So by charging less money, we were handicapping ourselves in the Kickstarter algorithm. Because at the same backer counts, we would have had a higher dollar amount, which would have been more likely to get us higher up on those first pages. Of and then the argument
1: is that your backer count would not have dropped. If you charge 4 bucks more, you'd have had very similar numbers of backers.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And we would have funded faster. We would have been higher up in the algorithm, had more discoverability, and, you'd, and somewhat of a knock-on effect. Just from charging a little bit more or by giving people sort of options to... To buy add-ons or or give you more money, assuming that you don't have a game that you know is at a price break where it's people are super, super price sensitive, right? But assuming that there's not a lot of price sensitivity, which I think was our case, I think charging more not only would have given us a wider margin, but also just helped the overall campaign, made it a bigger project, and had some nice knock-on effects.
1: Yeah, you know, the uh, price sensitivity is something that I'll that I'll say Kickstarter backers are less price sensitive than a traditional board game buyer you know a lot of the time there's this battle between you know in in like various social media groups you can find people advocating for supporting the local game store while at the same time like their next post is oh there was a sale on amazon right for this particular game that i've been looking out for so they buy it and so you you know you've got a lot of board gamers will buy stuff off amazon and bring them into the local game store because they are a little bit more price sensitive and you know then others are gonna to wanna to more support local their local business and and that sort of thing. But with Kickstarter, I mean there there are a couple of other reasons you'd want to back on Kickstarter, but y- you know, in general, you're gonna get something that you're you're gonna pay money for something that you're not gonna receive for a year. That to me says that those people that can do that are able to afford more than somebody who is looking for the next deal on Amazon. I uh, have found in general through these last several years that we've been marketing games, you know, COVID hit and everybody went inside and spent more money on Kickstarter. Everybody expected that they would live through COVID because they had board games that would arrive in 18 months. You know, that's, that's what I, we generally found. And, um, a lot of business owners that, you know, were publishers, um, putting games on Kickstarter, those people for a couple of months during COVID, they all pulled their projects. In fact, I think Frosthaven was like the only, you know, one of the only major projects to launch in April, May, June. It was like March through June was, was basically Frosthaven. And there might've been a couple others that decided not to reschedule their launch, but a lot of people rescheduled. And it was, you know, interesting because you know we would have been really hurt at that time if we had the amount of volume of clients that we did uh, today, because people were pulling their projects and not going to Kickstarter. Um, but because we only had a few clients, we'd only been doing this for you know six months or so. Uh, we, you know, we were going to Kickstarter anyway, and I remember marketing Ascension tactics and getting. The cheapest cost of per click and per subscriber that I've ever received because everybody stopped advertising. But the key is people didn't stop buying, and even today we're having you know we've got inflation and other various scares. I I am seeing numbers on Kickstarter are not um, contracting as quickly as you might expect, and I actually don't notice contraction at all yet. Uh, which is kind of weird to say. I think that Kickstarter backers have a little bit more disposable income, as uh, you know, because they're able to buy
2: something and wait a long time for it. So my background uh, wasn't finance historically before I, I left to, to do Pine Island, um, and people are essentially who are buying on Kickstarter. You're buying forward, so this is one of like those rare examples where because inflation is so high, you're actually like you're buying like a forward contract and you're like massively benefiting because Kickstarter creators haven't like adjusted their prices up for like what, what <laughs> prices will be 18 months from now. Right. So like you're actually like, it's, it's kind of like this weird situation where like you're getting the forward, but not along the actual like interest rate curve. Um, because us board game publishers aren't really thinking about the rate curve right now. We're just thinking oh, about like, sort of
0: like uh sort sort of like the, the issue, uh, uh andrew uh has been having with uh shipping in china um i remember when when he started the kickstarter uh it was like three thousand ish uh for a container and now i don't know where it's at now i think uh, maybe well andrew you can probably discuss it but i know it went up to like 30 something thousand dollars per container i think now it's somewhere yeah. in between is that is that right
1: yeah um it, it's hovering you know at a much more reasonable price of between fifteen to twenty thousand dollars per container.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well, we actually and also um,
2: we made our boxes shallower to save on freight. Freight is based on both the volume and then sort of the volumetric weight, right? So the weight of your game, and for most games, the constraining factor is the actual volume, right? Because games aren't super dense projects. So typically increasing volume will or decreasing the volume of your game will like the actual physical volume will have a much larger impact on your freight cost and the actual weight of the game. And so we went from 80 millimeters to 60 millimeter deep box, and it's saving us like massively on yeah. on freight.
0: The weight of games. I mean, the, you do have a uh, container weight uh, max. But, you know, when you have cardboard games in there, it won't hit that max at all. So it's all about the, the volume or a little bit. You know, I know you were talking about price about it was the game was thirty five and you were thinking about thirty nine. Um, I actually was looking at the artwork and I was looking at your Kickstarter page. and I, I'm just curious to wonder if even going up to forty five, I would have bought it at forty five. Um, I'm wondering if that might have been. um been something to look into as well, because a lot of the more advanced games these days, the, a little more the games with more playtime. I mean, the base on those things are, are like sixty right now. I think if I if I recall, I think that's not even gone up. Because most of the games I'm looking at these days are like ninety, hundred, hundred. Uh, don't <laughs> tell anyone, but I spent one hundred eighty dollars on a book <laughs> on Kickstarter. <Yeah. laughs> that's uh, was not that coming out,
2: Sanderson is that the Brandon No, Sanderson no,
0: question? no. Yeah, Brandon Sanderson made 40 something million dollars off his four books. And so not there's, there's No, yeah, not for me. There's another guy, um, he he wrote he started as a, it started as a blog and then he just get got more and more information. It's called I believe it's called 50 Years of Text Games. And so it goes back to the beginning of time where, you know, when there's the first text games like a Zork and and things like that and it goes all the way up to text games of today. And I thought it was going to be I I was I was crossing my fingers hoping he'd fund, and he actually brought in a half a million dollars, so I guess I did okay. I didn't think there was that many people who liked text games, but there was. Um, so I went all in. He had a uh, – the PDF was like 20-something, and then he had a uh, soft cover for 45, and they had a hard cover for 80. I went all in with the super-duper pledge with all these extras and stuff for, for $180. So <laughs> I guess I was a super fan. Woo for a book. Awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, one, one other thing I thought might be important to note is the, the offer is not just the price of the game, but it's also the full price of all the things, right? So you've got shipping as well. And I would, you know, what's nice about books or that you've got subsidized shipping, government subsidized shipping for things like music and books, which is awesome. But
0: yeah, but that's if the, well, that's only for the U S part of the shipping though. <laughs> <laughs> right. so
1: Which, you know, is, is a lot of the shipping, you know, the bulk of the shipping, at least 60% of a Kickstarter campaign would be the U.S. if, you know, or, or more. And I'm curious, uh, you know, so what you wrote was that, so you charge $35 a game and $11 for U.S. shipping. You felt like it would be better to charge $39 plus $15 shipping, and you felt like you'd
2: have minimal negative impact with I that. I think and that... The, the- the fifteen is, is sort of up in the air because uh, it, Andrew, we had a little conversation on Facebook before where you think that that sort of fifty dollars price break is pretty important and powerful, and I think that you're probably very right on that front. So I think that you know maybe 35, 39 plus thirty nine plus ten plus eleven, uh, you know somewhere in there would have worked well. Rick, to your question earlier about charging forty five a game, where I'd be hesitant with that is I. If, I, if it was 40, so right now it's 46 a game all in, right? And I think that that makes sense because I think that this game can support a 50 or $55 MSRP. Um, so the Kickstarter backers are getting a little bit of a discount. I think increasing it too high would have sort of made it a little bit hard because this I don't think the game could support a $65 MSRP right now, right? So if we're charging 45 plus, plus shipping on top, that would be hard. What mm-hmm. I think this is also teaching me a lot though, this, this entire process and this conversation about what is the right price to charge to your Kickstarter backers, because you have sort of two competing motivations that are pulling you in different directions as a creator. On the one hand, you want to recoup your investment and make enough money to live a life and publish more games, right? You're trying to, it's a for-profit entity that is trying to sort of make some money. And alongside that, uh, as we've talked about, you have a price insensitivity on Kickstarter specifically, and a lot of consumers who are probably willing to pay a higher price. That may not be reflective of your end consumer. Exactly. And on the other hand, one, that might not be reflective of when it's on a retail shelf, but also you want to do right by your customers. Like, I don't want to sell someone a game and then six months later they're like, oh, you know what? Like, I kind of overpaid for this. Like, I like the game, but. You know, it's it should it should maybe should have been a little bit cheaper or or whatever you have, like, not only because you don't want the negative feedback, but also because like we're making board games, you know, we want to make a living making board games, but we're making board games not because it's the most lucrative careers that we could have chosen, right? Like I was in a more lucrative career before I left to publish board games, right? We're making board games because like we love board games and we love the community around board games and we love the people who play board games and we wanna Create something and bring it into the world and give it to people, and they'll, so they'll love it. And so, we're doing this career because we're passionate about it and we want to give people good value. So, those two competing factors, I think I have a new understanding for why Kickstarter exclusives make sense because they allow you to either Kickstarter exclusives or the add ons um, that are so popular. I don't think that it's just FOMO. I think you see a lot on the internet that people sort of are like, oh, they're just FOMO marketing. They're just, FOMO is fear of Mm -hmm. missing out, right? Um, And so it's a sort of a a denigrative term for creators who create sort of fake scarcity in order to, you know, make people buy their product because they're afraid they won't be able to get it in the future. And I don't think I, I now have a new appreciation where I, I never really thought that it was fully FOMO marketing app having these exclusives on Kickstarters, because I've always thought it was sort of a way to reward people who are your supporters early. But I have a new appreciation where I think that even less so, because, you know, people who are less price sensitive, how do you give them value? Right? Like, If someone is less price sensitive, other than just, you know, how do you still give them more value at the price that they want to pay for something? And the way that you do that is by giving them more content or more or something special or something extra. And so I very much now am am falling into the camp of like having... Add-ons or having some sort of exclusivity for the Kickstarter backers is just like the fair is just like a fair way to go about it. Where these people want to pay you more money and want to give you more money and wouldn't care if you made it three or four dollars more. But then, how can you still do right by them? And that seems to be the obvious way to do that, which isn't something right. we did with our campaign. That is but- part of the offer,
1: you know. The the one of the questions that you need to answer at you know when you're going to. When you're taking anything, crowdfunding is why back now. This is oftentimes I think parroted in a way that is more ignorant of the way things go with creators. But you know the 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 objection that you'll get is how you know why why back now versus you know just buying it at retail. Like I'll get it off Amazon later. I'll get it off wherever. I'll get it from a local board game shop. I'll pick it up from Target later. It, and, and the reality is that a lot of games that are made on Kickstarter are Kickstarter exclusive, regardless of if they say it or not, because you're not finding them if you didn't back it on Kickstarter, you're not going to get it.
0: Right. And I was going to say like 80 to 90% of games don't go to retail. Like it's pretty right. high.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I, I think people are very loose. They play fast and loose with something with, with a phrase like that. And in actuality, it, it might entire, the entire thing might be Kickstarter exclusive. So, um, but yeah, it is part of the offer. Why back now? You know, and, and you need to answer that question, or you're going to lose backers. Thirty nine dollars with a, um, I mean, you could probably do eleven dollars shipping. Thirty nine dollars and eleven shipping, uh, one of a couple of other elements that will help. Kind of, it's a pill to swallow, a large pill to swallow. whatever price it is, you know, thirty nine dollars is not bad. Eleven dollars shipping kind of stinks, but if you get to charge later in a pledge manager then they're only paying $39 for Kickstarter or for their, for their game. You know, and if you determine later that the shipping, you know, if it goes up, which for deliverance, it obviously went up, we charged $3 more for, for shipping. And we got no, there were no issues from our backers. They were, they were happy with, it. but it's uh, you know, and I, I also found that after, after our Kickstarter ended, I had people that really wanted dice, that really wanted extra, um, like you could do packs of meeples or other things, and you can create add-ons in the pledge manager for people that that wanted them. And we, we actually made a pretty significant margin. We sold several hundred dice sets, like 300, over 300 sets of dice at mm-hmm. like four bucks and 50 cents a piece. And I mean, that just drove up average pledges pretty significantly, something little, but People really want it, and you know that's that's another opportunity to kind of add on, you know, little bits here and there for for folks. But I definitely think that uh, we probably we probably talked a lot about this um, already. But I, I I like playing with numbers. I think fifty dollars is a big benchmark. Um, it's fifty nine dollars is kind of like the I would say the new forty nine. But you know, I, I still think that people are a little price sensitive above fifty. And really, maybe even above 49. So, uh, but I'll I'll say, you know, one curiosity I have, and I would love your opinion on this before we would uh, switch topics is the retail pain. So it sounded like your $35 plus 11 is a $46 offer. Mm -hmm. And you felt like a $49 retail price is, is going to jive with that, that offer, you know, basically they could have saved $3 by getting it on Kickstarter. Uh, Is that what you were thinking was? Yeah. So I'm,
2: yeah. So, so that was my thinking is that it's probably going to be about a 50 retail game. I think that it might, at a lot of retailers might end up creeping it up to, to to 55 um just based on where comparable games are are sitting on shelves now future print runs will probably have a little bit of a higher price point on them but that's my gut is that it's going to be a a little bit you know people save a little bit off the retail and our first print run isn't going to be like crazy large so you know it, it is what it is actually what's interesting is in conversations with retail stores I had a couple of retail stores telling me that they wish that I charged higher on the campaign. Because their thinking is, is that that $35 number, when someone Googles nut hunt, one of the things that's going to pop up is that it was $35 on Kickstarter.
0: That's and exactly
2: what I was getting at,
0: is
1: that
2: the the $11 shipping...
0: There's also a low price psychology going on as well. Uh, for example, a good example is Amazon Prime Day. They had uh, robotic vacuums on sale for about half off of retail price, and you know, as a consumer, you look at it and go, "Oh, wow, that's a great deal!" And a lot of people, you know, jumped on the deal and bought it. But let's say you're on the fence and you didn't buy it. Well, you're not going to buy the game at full retail or sorry the the, uh, the, the robotic the vacuum, vacuum at full retail after you saw that deal you're going to wait for it to be a deal again and so that's another uh psychological uh you know barrier yeah. that people will see if they see something at a lower price point they may wait until that price point comes back again whether it does or not
1: yeah and that's something that you kind of got uh you I guess you may get your, your eventually you'll get your fans used to the way that you do things and the way that things happen after the Kickstarter and whatnot. But uh, uh, on something like steam video games, that is the way it works. You know, everybody wish lists a game, waits Mm -hmm. for it to go on sale and then jumps on it at that point, which is a very powerful way to, you know, I mean, video games are just software. You're, you know, it, it costs a billion dollars for the first bit of for the cut. Yeah. And then like nothing for the next. Yeah. So I, I, it is something to think about. I don't think that it's, you know, um, impossible to to overcome, but I would say if you charged $49 for the base game and $1 shipping, it retailers would be much happier. Yeah. Um, I, I actually decided in deliverance, I charged $89 for the base or for the, uh, what I call the all gameplay content, the deluxe edition. Yeah. That's, was the MSRP at, at the time. I have since increased the MSRP to $99, but the intent was that I didn't want to give anything off of the the product. Uh, instead I wanted to give people more more stuff. You know, the the spot UV on the box and other things like that that would be be cool. I, I think that I personally missed out a little bit there because I do think that people care about you know hey i'm getting a game for cheaper than i could get it for later and that's another thing that would help. i don't know
2: understand. i think that there's both sides to it so i think mm-hmm. that i think that people are vocal about that but i don't know that those are the people who were going to back your project anyway just for context the there was only there was one person it was the only negative comment on our entire camp on our entire page Um, was someone saying that they didn't think that there was enough value if we didn't hit the box insert stretch goal, you know, and I responded and I was like, Oh, like, I totally understand, you know, I've been pretty reasonable with our stretch goals, if we've been really close. And then my other backers came in and were like, Oh, like, we're gonna hit it. And Jasper's, you know, been super reasonable. And then we blew through it, right? We absolutely like crushed the stretch goal. Um, and so there's box insert in the box. So I went back to message that backer and just be like, hey, like, you know, I just wanted to let you know we hit it. And, you know, I'm really excited that you're going to be able to get the value that you expected. Like we hit that stretch goal. And then like the next day they unpledged. And I don't know like if there's like a good takeaway from this other than the idea that like, if someone is looking for, unless you're priced egregiously, right? If someone is looking for a reason not to support you and it's, you know, oh, I would if it was like $3 lower or $4 lower, like that's not true. You know, like they wouldn't like that's just like maybe one or two people. It's true, but mostly that's not true.
1: Right. We're talking about price elasticity of demand. You will will lose a few people every penny that you increase the cost of your game uh, in theory. But in actuality. You're going to make a whole lot more money versus, you know, I mean, you, you sell an ice cream cone for $1 to five people. If you increase that same ice cream cone to five bucks, two people are going to buy it and you, and you know, and you double the amount of money yeah. you make. I do
2: think that there's two other interesting points that are sort of embedded in this conversation. One is the trade-off with optics, right? In terms of if you, people are more likely to look at the headline price and, and not shipping in terms of how they think about the pricing, which is both good and bad. It's good, it well, so let's say that you charge a high, a very low shipping or, or shipping included, then it's a higher dollar price. You might lose some people because of that, but you also have the benefit of sort of the optics look better for when you do sell the game later down the road. Now, here's another thing on the other side of that though. Um, there are all, There's also a concept of sort of devaluing perceived value, right? So like by us charging $35 for the game, not only do I think that we didn't necessarily pick up, you know, quite the margin that we could have and, you know, it hurt us algorithmically, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were some number of people who saw $35 and then associated what they think a $35 game should be and sort of like the component quality and the production quality or like the scope of the game and like had those biases that then they approached our game with. Whereas if they saw it as a $50 game and they're like, oh, this is comparable in weight to like ticket to ride, right? And mm-hmm. ticket to ride is a $50 game. So I get that. And this looks like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's very hard because every consumer is coming from a different place psychologically and different experience and sort of different financial situation and different needs, right? But it's a very, very complicated problem where whatever you do with price, you're going to Mm-hmm. both hurt yourself and help yourself in some way. Yeah. And uh, the key
1: is to not go out of business. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I guess, really the the center of it all. You know, we need to charge a number that is fair. And that's, I think, why one of the most helpful things are just benchmarks of, you know, a- as an example with deliverance, because I know the numbers like the back of my hand, deliverance costs about $18 to make a deluxe copy of the game. It's going to cost, um, we'll print probably 5,000 units. Maybe it's going to be about $17.60 because instead of printing 4,000, we'll print 5,000. So we'll save a little bit. The, The landed cost of deliverance is right around, it's like $22 right now. Our MSRP is 100. We need to have a landed cost of five times that MSRP if we want to sell at retail to make good money that's the Mm -hmm. you know five to six times the landed cost is what you kind of want um landed means your the cost of the actual manufacturing and the cost to freight all of those games to your fulfillment center this is us
2: fees and tariffs right Mm -hmm. yeah
1: so i'm talking us because that you know if you ship games into australia or whatever you're not going to be able to ship a full containers worth of games there you know and So on so let's just say like you ship a full container to the us by the way you should floor load all of your containers what that means is uh you don't have the factory palletize them you should just have the factory put all the games floor to ceiling in in the container and have your own container if you can you know that would be better than palletizing you definitely want to palletize if you have somebody else that you're sharing space with in the container uh you could be sharing space with you know barbecues or something, and one of those falls over and crushes half your inventory. You want them to be in pallets so that they can resist uh, that type of stuff. But anyway, the uh, the basic, you know, numbers I think are whatever you're charging, or whatever the manufacturing cost uh, is a, for uh, your game. You should charge six times that, and that gives you your your retail cost. If you want to kind of charge a little lower or a little more to reach benchmarks, then that's good. But I also find that, you know, charging for, let's say, you know, if you print 3,000 units versus 5,000, your margins are going to be a whole lot better. So, you know, you should set your MSRP based off of a margin. Um, I personally, I'm a fan of setting your MSRP based off of 5,000 units, a 5,000 unit print run. Uh, If you can print 15,000, then great. That's where you make your money. And that's why board game companies like Fantasy Flight Games exist. Because they're able to print 15,000 units of everything or more. So that's those are some loose thoughts, you know, if, if, if anybody wanted to know those. There's, there are a lot of unknowns, but I think going back to formulas and whatnot can be really useful when you're looking at so much data. It's like, I don't even know what I should price it at. It's like, what does the common industry knowledge say? And that's that's there's some of that for you.
0: And with that, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. A big shout out and thank you to Jasper Birch of Pine Island Games. If you're interested in Nut Hunt, visit pineislandgames.com and click on Nut Hunt and get your info in there. Also, Jasper uh, claims he's on every single social media platform in the world. So just look up Nut Hunt or Pine Island Games, or Jasper, and you should find them on your favorite social media platform. And as always, if you're interested in our podcast, feel free to check us out at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you're needing some extra help on your crowdfunding adventure, on our crowdfundingnerds.com website, hit the little button that says Ask a Question, or we even have a more demanding button that says Hire Us, and we'll help you out and get you going to where you need to go. And with that said, we will see you all next week. Stay nerdy.